Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And I'd like to invite you to turn with me if you have a Bible to Acts chapter 2, back just after where we were called to worship. That uh, sermon continues with a number of scriptural references. The words of the prophets confirmed then by eyewitness testimony and a particular appeal made to the people to be saved from the perverse generation. Peter, uh, quoting the prophets, just for context, I'm going to back up a little bit to uh, verse 31 where he, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every, uh, every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and all who were believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided among them all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the word, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, seeing again the great power of the Holy Spirit and the great joy of the church, We long again for the fulfillment of these things in our own time. That spirit which has been poured out has inaugurated a new season and a new time. The the era of the spirit. And pray that you would continue to empower the church in its witness both here and to the very ends of the earth. Bless those means of grace that we too would continue to see with joy those daily being added to the church as we're being saved. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Some years ago, somebody told my nephew, who was young at the time, that um, not everything that he eats is good for him. 
that some things make you stronger. Some things make you weaker. Well, you know what happened? From that time on, every time he sat down to eat or every time somebody offered him something, you know what he asked? Mommy, will this food make me stronger or will this make me weaker? Because, you know, he only wanted to eat food at that point that made him stronger. Well, fair enough. And did you know that God has given us spiritually things that also make us stronger? Theologians sometimes call them means of grace. The things that God himself gave by which we are able to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, people seek physical growth and strength in our day, sometimes in strange ways. Infomercials will promise you a secret pill or patch or effortless machine that will make you healthy and strong. But you know that no such pill exists, right? Or if you do know of a pill, see me later. Okay. Um, uh, Similarly, spiritually speaking, people are looking for that secret to a spiritual zapping by which the Holy Spirit will take your 98-pound weakling soul and make it into the spiritual equivalent of Mr. Universe. However, in the passage that what we read, we are pointed to a fact, uh, a fact that God has certain means that he's promised to bless. In fact, in the passage we read this morning from 2 Peter, we're reminded that the Spirit did a massive work in inspiring for us words. Words that we read are not only able to make us wise into salvation through faith which is in Jesus, but also to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, instruct us in righteousness, that we might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, all that we could possibly do in our lives. And so, for this reason, the Bible is called the primary means of grace. That is to say, there's many ways that God has given to us by which we might grow, but the primary means for growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, growing up in our salvation, is his own word. As newborn babes, Peter says, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Means of grace, means of salvation and growth. Okay, there are, of course, other means of grace, even mentioned here in the book of Acts, as I'll show you, I'll explain more in a moment. But as we begin, simply pointing out that God has given us some things, things which, used rightly with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, become the means for us to grow spiritually. It's important because there are things which might make us feel good, but don't actually do us good. There's things that will gather a crowd that are worthless or even positively harmful. And there are things which, well, the natural man might find very offensive, but nevertheless are the very things that God has promised to use and to bless. And we need to have, if you like, a taste for those things that make us stronger, not weaker. I can very clearly remember looking into the pantry one day at the box of Little Debbie Star Crunch cakes, right? When I was a lad and thinking, when I grow up, some of you have the same thought, 
when I grow up, I'm going to have a pantry full of those Star Crunch cakes. I love those things. I wanted to live on a pure sugar diet. Some of you young people may be living the dream right now, right? All right. But then after a while, you find out, man, all that sugar, it makes you kind of flabby. And that sugar high that makes you feel so great when you eat it, afterward, you don't feel so hot. And of course, long term, there's almost no nutrition in that diet. It's going to make you weaker, not stronger. You have to cultivate a taste for things besides star cakes if you want to be strong and live in this world. Well, there's a similar struggle going on in the Western church especially right now as we are tempted to offer people the spiritual equivalent of Little Debbie star cakes in order to get them and their children in. And it does work in that people will come. And people will like it. But can you grow on that diet? Can you live on that diet? You know, if you eat too much sugar, you do get larger and larger. But you also get sicker and sicker. The the church can get larger and larger. And church growth does not imply church health. Especially these days. I'll give you one uh, biblical analogy, just an analogy. But you remember how Daniel and his companions refused to eat that diet of the king's delicacies in Babylon. Must have made their mouth water to smell what everyone else was eating. And yet we read that by devoting themselves to the Lord, they were healthier and better nourished than any of the young men at the end of the day. In a miraculous way. This is only an analogy, but in the same analogous way. All those who are trained on a full diet of obedience to God, of training themselves to love the word of God and the worship of God and the various means that he uses to bless us will be infinitely healthier, spiritually speaking. Now, it's the new year. Many of us find ourselves on a diet. And bodily exercise profits a little diet in this coming year. What diet? Not weaker. What's going to make you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, in the passage before us, We learned how this new church in Jerusalem was given birth and given a great start to growth. How they devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching and the daily worship of God and so forth. In fact, uh, repeating that word devoted in verse 46, although I couldn't find any English translation that brings it out. But the same thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, verse 46. They devoted themselves daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. We read of their devotion to word and worship and fellowship, and we read of the rapid growth and the grace and the godliness that went. And Wow, what I'm here today to explain to you is what are these means of the things that uh, hunger, and how exactly do they work? I'm sorry, I know I've been struggling some with these evening sermons as I I have found this actually a bit more staggering than I anticipated, even with so many helps. But nevertheless, I'm going to try to be more direct and clear this evening and even lean on our own church's shorter catechism, which clearly and concisely sets down these truths. If you would like to look at page 876, 
You can not only see what I'm talking about this evening, but then later you can say, what was that guy trying to say? And you can pull out your commentary on the Shorter Catechism by G.I. Williamson and say, oh, that's what he meant to say. Yeah, exactly. Okay. 876. And um, we'll uh, be starting in just a moment with uh, question 88. So just getting you, getting you ready, getting you on the on-ramp to answer the big question today, what are the means of grace and how do they work? I guess that's two questions, but I'm taking it under one point. What are the means of grace and how do they work? Um, well, uh, I'll, sure, I'll start by just reading uh, question 88 to you, top right, top left corner of the page. Um, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Answer, the outward and ordinary, um, in the sense of being ordained also, I think here, uh, means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. You say that's not clearer, that's more confusing. Well, that's, this is what I'm going to explain and unpack. So, this chapter of God's Word that we just read in Acts 2 tells us how it is that overnight there came to be a large, healthy, growing church in Jerusalem. The disciples went out into the thronging streets that morning at the feet of Feast of Pentecost in order to proclaim that the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of this sinful world, had risen from the dead and was seated at God's right hand and would save anyone who called upon him. It was a message I mentioned earlier that might very well have been laughed at or simply ignored, but in fact, thousands believed, and not only believed, but were made new creatures in Christ on the spot, changed root and branch, and set on a new course of life so that that morning sermon resulted in 3,000 people devoting themselves to Christ. The word devotion occurring twice in the original. Remarkable. The, these people should not have believed. They had no intention of believing in Christ. They had, they had been hostile to the Christian message. In fact, some of them calling for Christ's crucifixion, no doubt. Uh, who can explain what happens? Well, the truth is, verse 47, it was the Lord who had added to the church, and he was continuing to add to it daily. The Lord had explained in the previous chapter, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you with power, and you will be witnesses to me, and people are going to believe. The Lord did it. The Spirit poured out. The people believed by the thousands and were saved. And the means that the Lord used that morning, in Acts chapter 2, that fills the page, was a scripture-soaked sermon confirmed with apostolic witness of the truth of Jesus Christ. Okay? Parallels to the book we've been studying in the morning. Okay? God's word was the means of their salvation. The instrumental means, if you like Aristotle and all that, right? Many times in the Bible, we read that the word saves people. The Word saves. Now, you know that's a shortcut, right? For the Word has no power 
on its own. I just told you about my barista friend who read the Bible four times, saw nothing in it. I told you about my other friend in Charlotte. He just sat down to read it just because he's curious. He, he just wanted to read another classic in his retirement. C- utterly changed, brought to his knees, made new in Christ. The word was the same, and yet what a difference. Softening some, hardening others, converting some, uh, causing others to grind their teeth in rage. Why is it that the word has such an effect on some? Well, we say uh, the word saves when it's received in faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, people then uh, come to and are united with Christ the Savior. We realize that that's a shortcut for believing in Jesus, believing the word that was saved by which we are united to Jesus. But it's important to note as we begin that the Bible often uses what those same theologians call sacramental language, a sacramental union in the language between the means and the grace. So let me go to the concrete before I blow your mind, right? Okay, so James writes, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word that's able to save your souls. Paul writes to the Corinthians, you are saved if you hold fast that word, the angel to Cornelius. Peter will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Well, words that will save. The saving word, the word that's able to save you. Uh, Watch your life in doctrine closely. You're going to save yourself and your hearer. Like, good doctrine is going to save people. I mean, if that's true, the Presbyterian church would be... No, I'm just kidding. All right. So, my point is this. There, there, there's this very, very frequent uh, um, sacramental union between the means, the, the word, and the grace that it brings, the, the salvation, the building up, okay? So that the one is... Uh, uh, expl- expl- explains, explains the other. So you can understand that people might make an error that, well, the word would have the power to save on its own. Um, there was uh, a, couple, a couple awkward times in history where uh, um, uh, people actually thought this, but, but you understand. It's, it's, it's not only kind of a shortcut language. The Bible generally doesn't use shortcut language, but you know, sometimes with means of grace, I mean, pretty often with means of grace, it'll use the word that, uh, uh, to signify the grace, okay? But we understand it's a shortcut. For Jesus says to the people who knew the Bible backward and forwards, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. An understandable error. But these are they which testify of me. And you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. The word is not able to save you in that sense. The word is that which testifies of Jesus. Using the word by, in faith, by the power of the Spirit, uniting us with Jesus, uh, uh, believing into him, we have life. Jesus is the source of life. The scriptures are the uh, inspired means by which we come to know the Savior, come to believe in or into him, uh, and then are taught, reproved, corrected, instructed in righteousness and in a holy life. And all this only works, the word works, 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in, with, and through the word. Okay, so this uh, question 89, if you're still in the red book here, then how is the word made effectual to salvation? Uh, effectual being like, effective, right? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness to comfort through faith unto salvation. Okay? The word that gives you the name of Jesus, gives you the, the message of Jesus, that tells you of the salvation of Jesus. The Spirit of God makes that word an effectual means. How does this salvation come to us? Through God's word. The scriptures themselves don't save anyone. The Bible didn't die for you. The Bible hasn't reconciled you to God. Jesus saves. But the only Jesus that you could ever know and believe in comes to us through the means of the reading and preaching of God's word. So, hence the shortcut. Okay? Nothing magical about the reading of the Bible or hearing it preached. Many people have done that and left completely unchanged. But the word is a means, an essential means of salvation. Nobody's going to believe, Paul says, unless they hear. Romans 10. The Bible ain't going to save you on its own, but the Bible does make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And why does the Bible have the effect on one, not the other? Answer the Spirit of God. You understand? If you want to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but convinced, rebuked, exhorted, coming to maturity, you need to make use of God's word and pray the blessing of God's spirit upon it because it is by such means that growth occurs. Ain't going to happen without it. That's how life comes. That's how growth comes. Crave that pure spiritual milk of the word. The word that's able to save your souls. Okay, let's consider, secondly, prayer. I already kind of mentioned that, but uh, let's look at it as a separate element. Prayer is also a means of grace. Is prayer able to save you? Well, it depends on what you mean. Do you mean like magic words? That if you say the right thing with suitable conviction and feeling, that that prayer is going to deliver you? Well, um, no, of course, if that's what you mean. Prayer did not die for us. Prayer did not reconcile us to God. Of course not. But prayer is how we lay hold of Jesus. Pray, it, prayer is how salvation, the means by which salvation comes to us. The means by which we are saved. Here it is in verse 21 in Acts chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, there was an embarrassing time. There's several embarrassing times in the history of the church where forced conversions happened and uh, you know, uh, people were made to recite uh, certain, certain things and be baptized as though that was going to do it. Okay? Um, th this, of course, treats the thing as though it were the grace itself. It's not. It's a means of grace. Uh, salvation does come to us through... Praying, calling on the name of the Lord. The tax collector beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. That is how salvation comes. 
uh, Acts 22:16, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, which Paul did and was saved and delivered from his sins. Calling on the name of the Lord itself doesn't save us. It doesn't wash away any sins on its own, of course. This is sacramental language, so-called, that where the Bible often joins together the means and the grace. Because when those means are used with faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, by them we lay hold of Christ and his benefits. Jesus is the only Savior. By prayer, we call on the name of the Lord and lay hold of Jesus. You understand the means idea. So you uh, want to grow. You're going to have to give yourself, devote yourself to the word. You're going to have to devote yourself to prayer. How much more will the, your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Or good gifts to those who ask him, as the Lord said both. Uh, this is the means by which Christ and his benefits first come and are renewed and built up in God's elect for salvation. So that's the point of the, ask, of the question here. Um, the Spirit of God, just like in the Word, uh, makes it an effectual means, so the Spirit of God makes this prayer an effectual means as, as uh, we... In faith, uh, praying in the Spirit, call unto the Lord, call on the name of the Lord, and by this we are saved. So in that sense, sure, prayer saves us as it's written. We've considered the word and prayer. We'll come thirdly to baptism in our passage, also mentioned here in verse 38. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Baptism, as we've already considered, is a sign that means something. Just like words mean something, baptism means something. Just like words uh, represent Christ and his benefits and explain them and uh, explicate them, and when they're received by faith, by the Spirit, we are saved. Baptism, likewise, means something. It, It communicates uh, the, the meaning of Christ and his benefits by which we laid hold of the Lord and also in faith by the Spirit uh, become the means of doing something in exactly the same way. Skipping down to question 92 in the red book here for a moment, bottom left-hand corner of the page. Uh, what's a sacrament? Answer, a sacrament's a holy ordinance instituted by Christ wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Well, okay, baptism. What does baptism represent? Well, uh, ultimately, Christ and his salvation and the washing away of sins by his blood, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that union by which we are baptized into Christ, united with Christ, being baptized into his death, and so forth. In general, when we are baptized, we are... um, the, the, the meaning of the baptism as it's received by faith, receiving his salvation. And baptism works in the same way as other means, other significant means like words. Remember, words don't save us on their own, but as the words come to us, we receive them, and we believe what they are communicating to us, receiving them in faith, 
The Holy Spirit uniting us to the Lord Jesus, building us up in him. You see why it uses the shortcut, because I have to say that every time. It's, it's quite a long chain of things that has to happen, right? Um, the word saves us in that, yeah, the word that uh, comes to us, and, and we receive it uh, by faith. It comes to us. We believe the, the meaning, the significance of those words, uh, and that's called faith, and then laying hold of Jesus by faith. The Holy Spirit then renewing us, renew, unites us with Jesus, and so we are saved. Well, just so much simpler to say that the word saves. The words don't do it on their own, even though the Bible uses such language from time to time. Prayer doesn't save us on its own. By prayer, we call in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith is the means by which we lay hold of Christ, but prayer um, is in the Bible, uh, which uses sacramental language. It sometimes might sound as though prayer itself does the trick. We know it's a shortcut. Baptism, similarly, doesn't save us on its own. Some people have thought, even in the early, or even especially in the early church, um, that uh, baptism did have that uh, saving power on its own, as though it itself did the deed. So Peter, in the first letter, gives this explanation. Peter has to write to explain, in chapter 3, this baptism which saves you, comma, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal of a, uh, to God for a good conscience. Um, that's the significance here, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The water itself does not regenerate or has saving power. It's what it represents. But God is pleased to use that means to communicate to us, in the same way that the Word does, the gospel, and receiving that, as we do, it is then blessed for our salvation and the washing away of our sins. Um, understanding all those trains of uh, dot, dot, dot. Similarly, Paul emphasizes to Timothy. Timothy, according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, it's ultimately not the washing of water but it's the spiritual washing that he mercifully uses to save us. Water is the sign. It's the reality, the thing that it signifies that we receive in faith, that receiving in faith the gospel there signified, uh, the effect is regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. As an aside, uh, many Jews, especially later on, were similarly confused about circumcision. I mean, God said, this is my covenant, Right? Uh, many, many passages that talk about how uh, there's the difference between unclean and clean, holy and unholy, uh, God's people, the kingdom of priests, and the uh, uh, accursed Gentiles. The difference between those people is circumcision. And so, gee, you have circumcision, right? That's going to that's gonna do the trick. Well, it might seem from many passages that circumcision will make you clean and holy and renew you by the Holy Spirit to make you righteous in the sight of God. But as we read in Romans last week, Paul says, look, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision which is outward in the flesh. He's a Jew who's one inwardly in circumcision, that of the heart and of the spirit. Circumcision does bring you the oracles of God. It communicates the truth. But if you don't mix that with faith... If there is no inward work by the Spirit in your heart, it profits you nothing. It's an albatross, as a matter of fact. Well, same pattern. The Bible often uses sacramental language of circumcision. 
joining together the means and the grace. It does that with the word. It does that with prayer. It does that with baptism. As though these things automatically work on their own to regenerate us or wash away our sins or save us. And you might be easily forgiven for making such a mistake. Again, uh, to Paul it was said, Acts 22, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Well, well, there it is. I just believe the Bible, says the Church of Christ folks, right? Be baptized and wash away your sins, right? Okay, you understand sacramental language. That's a very important shortcut by which God very frequently joins together the means and the grace. The means are not going to do you any good unless they come with faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uniting us to Jesus, who did die for your sins and who was able to take them all away. So baptism, the the significance of that baptism that we receive, um, blessing those things then to us. So here's question 91 in the uh, list here again. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? I mean, how does it work? The sacraments become effectual or effective means of salvation, not from any virtue in them, or in him that does administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and by the working of his Spirit in them that by faith receive them. So just as the Word comes to us, we by faith receive, the Spirit blesses, we are joined together to Christ and receive his blessings. The Word becoming a means that we receive in faith. Okay, The sacraments, likewise, that Word made visible by which receiving those things we believe and are baptized. You say, well, does that mean that baptism then, which does save us in that sense, is that tied to the moment of our regeneration? Not at all. Cornelius, we considered earlier, Peter preaches to them, Peter believes, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are visibly the recipients of salvation. They've been saved by grace through faith. Well, Peter then says, who's got some water? Because... We need to formalize and signify that which has already happened. Sometimes in the Bible, those things are reversed. Uh, Many times people are baptized or circumcised and not saved. What if some of them didn't believe was the very next question about circumcision, right? So there is this uh, confusion that sometimes comes in the church. So we, we shouldn't separate salvation from the word sacraments and prayer. We shouldn't say, well, yeah, salvation can come to the people in the remote depths of the jungle somewhere who've never heard the word, who've never called to the name of Jesus, uh, never uh, been baptized in his name, have no communion uh, with him and those things. So we, we shouldn't separate those things. These are essential means by which the elect are saved and built up in holiness. We shouldn't confuse those means as though the one was the other, that magic words are spoken, or uh, magic words are made in prayer, or that uh, water is going to do the deed, Um, or even as I'll have to show in another day, that uh, the Lord's Supper is going to take us magically into communion with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. We do receive the body and blood of Jesus. We are members of his flesh and of his bones. We are made one and united in him. Uh, All those things are true. If we confuse the sign and the thing signified, 
we're on the wrong track. If we separate them, we're on the wrong track. We need to see one is the means that God uses through faith by the Spirit to bring us the other. Okay. I hope that I'm not beating too much of a dead horse. These are difficult things. I'm trying to be very clear. Baptism and the Lord's Supper that I spoke about last week work as the Word made visible. The Word made visible. You proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Baptism um, saves you the, the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's the meaning of these things that's so important. The words communicate truth that unites us to Jesus. The sacraments communicate truth, the same truth that unites us to, believe, to, to, to Jesus. And so the sacraments are only administered with the word. You'll notice in our Reformed churches, sacraments only come with the word that they are illustrating and signifying. These two are joined together. The word is always given by far the most emphasis in the Bible lest we drift into a superstitious and sacramentalist view of salvation. So, this is why the word is called the primary means of grace, and this is why prayer is called the means of grace. Why do you have to have all this theology? Well, because you might think that prayer saves you if you read a number of passages. So we have to have this theology that explains what prayer actually does, how it works. Uh, Baptism saving you, the Lord's Supper, again, uh, uniting you or... uh, giving you communion with the Lord Jesus. I haven't talked much about baptism tonight. Uh, These things are means by which the truth being communicated to us that we believe by the blessing of the Spirit unite us or restore us or renew us in uh, our union and communion with Jesus. Uh, This also, by the way, is why our services are so boring to the unconverted. This is why uh, well, um, we do things that would be offensive <laughs> to the natural man, like uh, cutting them to the heart and uh, uh, saying convicting things, because it's, it's through repentance and baptism we just read that uh, salvation is able to, able to come to them. This is why we have expository preaching, because we are trying to rest uh, everything on the word the word which is able to save you and build you up in holiness. This is why we sing uh, these spirit-inspired uh, texts. Uh, th- th- this, this list of things, as you, as you make a rundown, this isn't a minimalist service, as some have accused me of having. This is the choice middle cuts of beef, Right? You know, when you go to the to fancy restaurants, right, and they have that, you know, like the little tiny, like the really fancy restaurants, they have this little tiny piece of beef, and you're like, oh, I wish they would give you one. Like, I never go to those restaurants, I'm sure you don't either, right? But you've seen the pictures, right? Okay, but you know that what they've cut out for you is the best part. That's why you're paying 50 bucks for a little thing of meat. Um, and what we have here are these choice, choicest cuts so concentrated together, the things which God has promised to, uh, to bless to your growth in grace and salvation. And the reason we have this complicated theology is not that we can just have big heads, but so we can know Christ and his power more. That's the point of this means of grace language, is that 
when we use these means in the right way, Christ and his benefits are communicated to us and by the power of the Spirit made effectual in your life and mine that we be stronger. Okay? Coming full circle. That's the point. So, um, I conclude then with a practical exhortation for you to give yourself to these means. As I've explained to you, not just reading the page this year so you could check off a box because somehow the reading of the page is going to do your soul some good. It doesn't work that way. The word on its own will be of no help to you at all if it's not mixed with faith and by the power of the Spirit that you uh, should ask for because they are means of grace, not grace itself. Okay. Um, giving yourself to the preaching of the word. Why don't you people go to evening service? Just a joke. Thank you for coming to evening service. But if I'm going to ask you, how are you going to grow this year? How are you going to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and be strong in the Lord and the power of his might? What is the way that you will be mature and complete and corrected and reproved and instructed in righteousness? Well, when God wants to prepare the way of the Lord, when he wants to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and vice versa and on and on, how does he do it? When he wants a city to repent, how does God, what means does he use? Primarily, the word, especially the preached word. And conversely, do you know the primary way that God's people historically have been ruined? Not just in our time, but even in biblical times. According to God himself, the prophets and the ministers of the word were primarily the ones responsible for the spiritual collapse of Israel. They are the ones who were destroying the church that was so newly planted by the apostles in primitive purity. A sentiment repeated in the book of Jeremiah almost 20 times. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. They are giving to them poison if they give them anything at all. And I just read to you last week, uh, I know this after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Also among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Watch, therefore. And remember, for three years I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You want to grow with what is healthy or you want to be poisoned to death? The difference between that life and death, not just growth and grace, but life and death is in these means. The primary means that Satan will use to ruin you, your children and your children's children forever.